0: Welcome to the Journal Star in the Newsroom podcast. I'm Associate Editor Chris Kiergaard. Joining me today is Illinois Comptroller Susanna Mendoza, here to talk a little bit about the state budget and some of the, the effects of that. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. Uh, we've got... Uh, got a state budget passed, and passed relatively on time this year for the first time in in a while. Uh, Moody's, the credit rating agency, issued a a relatively stable statement on the the budget itself, and we still need to address a a big bill backlog out there, uh, about $6.2 billion as of yesterday. So I want to start off by talking about uh, how you think we ended up... uh, in this new budget that's been passed and, and what it means for dealing with some of those longer-term problems.
1: Sure. Well, number one, I mean, it's important to acknowledge that this budget, while not perfect, is the closest thing we've seen to that in quite a long time. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we did finish a budget on time. The legislature and the governor came together in bipartisan fashion, something we have not seen in years, to craft a responsible budget that certainly serves as a moral document for where the state's priorities lie. Um, We've seen increased revenue for universities, for social service providers, for capital infrastructure uh, through a capital plan, um, you know, increased revenues that are going to go to help actual people, and, you know, a little help uh, for the controller's office in terms of being able to pay down the bill's backlog. Although we are certainly nowhere near where we need to be, even with this what I would call a significantly uh, wonderful budget compared to what we've seen, but nonetheless, um, we were getting about 1.2 billion dollars in bonding authority that will allow us to uh, go to the market and um, turn the, hopefully that 1.2 billion into you know additional federal matching dollars and pay down some of the bills' backlogs while at the same time saving taxpayers money because we're paying about 12 percent interest on in about 1.2. $1.6 billion dollars worth of bills today, and if I can take that interest down from 12 to, say, 3 to 5%, that's certainly a, a cost benefit for taxpayers instead of, you know, costing us money. It's going to save us money in the long run.
0: That ends up shaking out to, to tens of millions of dollars a year in, in savings on those interest payments, right?
1: That's exactly right. So, you know, normally when people hear that we're going to be bonding money, they, they get, you know, naturally so, uh, tend to, to not like the idea because they feel it's borrowing to pay down bills that you know um, is not a wise way of spending tax dollars. But in this case it does make financial sense because this would be similar to refinancing your home. If you were paying let's say 12% interest on your home mortgage and somebody offered you that, that interest at three and a half percent, would you do it? And I don't know anyone who wouldn't take that deal, not only because in the short term it would reduce your monthly payments But more importantly, because when that loan is over, you will have saved a ton of money on that home purchase. So in this case, because we are paying 12% interest on so many bills, it makes sense to target that $1.2 billion bonding authority to only go after paying down those bills that we're paying a ridiculous amount of late fees on uh, and not utilize those dollars to pay down normal bills that don't accrue late payment interest penalties. So, long story short, we know what we're doing in the controller's office, and my mission is to safeguard people's tax dollars and make them work uh, to the best possible advantage we can for our taxpayers.
0: And, and a lot of that involves some of that that strategic shifting around of the cash to uh, to to pay down the right bills, which you have authority to do, right?
1: Yes, and we've taken the bill back uh, down from in just a year and a half uh, since I took office from what it was at its worst, which was sixteen point seven billion down to today, it's actually uh, at 6.6. It was at 6.1 yesterday, 6.6 today. But that's an ebb and flow. Um, You know, if we got a big pile of bills in overnight, you're going to see a little bit bigger of a bill backlog today. But we'll probably be making uh, payments over the next, you know, today and Monday that will bring it back down potentially. Uh, It's been hovering in that 5.9 to, you know, 7 billion uh, over the last couple months.
0: All right. And one of the other factors in in this last year is the first fiscal year that the Debt Transparency Act that you pushed for has been in place, showing how many bills are waiting at state agencies to get sent over to your office to begin the payment process there. What what have we learned from that first year of it? And are you seeing agencies that are sending bills to you more promptly because of that?
1: Yes. First of all, I want to be like, woohoo, we have the Debt Transparency Act. And I'm so excited about it because while most people probably don't think it's very sexy, um, I think it's so incredibly awesome that for the first time uh, in the history of our state, we now have a full year's worth of bills to look back at, and we were able to craft this year's budget with data that was accurate as of the months before versus what in the past had been a year lack in actual real-time data. So um, this is a huge step in, in stabilizing our state's finances, uh, prior to the debt transparency being uh, implemented, the controller could only see about thirty percent of the state's liabilities. The other seventy percent or so were at the agency level. To your question, today it's the inverse. About seventy percent of all the state's incurred liabilities are now in the possession of the controller's office. There's about a thirty percent that um, that are not, but I can at least see that thirty percent now, and I know that in the near future, certain bills are going to be making their way to my office, and I can plan for that. Whereas before, I couldn't plan for anything other than just paying down the bills that were in my possession. But on any given day, I could be surprised with a billion dollars worth of bills that I didn't even know existed, right? So things are much better from a planning perspective. Um, And while our office still, of course, has a significant backlog to contend with, uh, it's certainly uh, something that I can plan for and cash and debt manage, um, you know, in the interim. So, look, we're not out of the woods yet. This is a great budget. It does a lot to stabilize finances. It creates the potential in a year from now when voters get to choose whether they or not they want a fair tax. Uh, if they pass that fair tax, then it will stabilize our revenues even further, our finances, because... Ninety-seven percent of people will hopefully see either a tax freeze or a tax reduction, whereas the three percent of those who can afford to pay the most will be paying a little more. Um, that's going to help give us some more predictability and stability of our finances, which ultimately the markets I think will see upon will see favorably upon that. And more importantly, we can plan to pay down that bill backlog even further without having to resort to any additional borrowing or anything like that.
0: All right. Excellent. Uh, I, I also want to ask you about some legislation that, that you ran this session to help give people a little more access to reliable banking. Now, we see a large yeah. number of predatory lenders in, in Peoria itself uh, that, that affect the, the poorer communities here. So talk about why, what what this will do and, and why it's important for that estimated one-fifth of Illinoisans who don't use the traditional banking system.
1: Yeah, so there's so many Illinoisans, especially in, um, you know, poorer areas of the state, marginalized communities, um, who do not use traditional banking. And it could be for a you know, multitude of reasons, just natural distrust, a cultural distrust, it could just be that um, they fear not having access to their money should they need it, um, and also because of cost prohibitive fines and fees that many banks place on not having minimum balances. So there's lots of reasons, but what we want to do is to make sure that people are utilizing traditional banks that do offer, for example, low interest rates to people who are otherwise going to predatory lenders and essentially, you know, to pay a bicycle, they end up paying what would have been the equivalent of a car, right? So we want to make sure that there are really good partners in the state of Illinois in traditional banking um, outfits that would offer low-interest low, inter- low interest loans to people who have traditionally been credit-challenged, who offer uh, banking products without any fees or minimums, uh, so there's no penalties involved. Um, there's even, like, a overdraft forgiveness on your first shot. I mean, there's, like, really a great opportunity for Illinoisans who, you know, maybe in the past had reasons to distrust banks. There are certain banks who provide a, a litany of services to folks who could really benefit from access to them. What Bank On Illinois is is the program that we created. It would be somewhat of a of like a rubber, like not a I don't want to call it a rubber stamp, but a stamp of approval of the services that certain banks offer Illinoisans that we believe are legitimate, that they have been fully vetted by not just our office, by but also by good government types and uh, non for profits that deal with this, these types of issues. Uh, And kind of like the Better Business Bureau, who many people have come to rely on uh, when they think about hiring someone to do a job, they check to see if they've been approved by the Better Business Bureau. Um, We're essentially going to be vetting these banks to make sure that people can have a level of trust, that if they go to this bank, it is a bank on Illinois bank, which means that their services are legitimate, they've been fully vetted, and that we trust that they will be uh, really good partners, civic partners, with these constituents who would like to have entry into the banking community versus, you know, essentially being robbed lined by predatory lenders.
0: All right. Establishing that access is is an important part of of that endeavor, the the second part of it is is getting people to use that access, to be aware that it's there, make making that access available to them if, if they have limited transportation ability, uh, getting the word out in some of those communities where there may be cultural issues that that are at play. How do you take those next leaps on on the issue?
1: Sure. Well, we're what the good thing about it is that we're partnering with those very non for profits who every day are dealing with. Um, you know, this, this service clientele. And so they, they really would love to see a product like this, which is why we work collaboratively with them to get it done. And they're going to be our partners in helping us market this, this program. Um, they obviously see those constituents much more than anyone working in the controller's office would see on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we'll also, though, of course, provide information about it on our website, which is available to anyone in the comfort of their home. But we do want to rely on the non-for-profit community, um, which is really excited about, the Bank on Illinois program, uh, because it's something that they can take as a a leaflet or a flyer or whatever and give, actually hand it to someone physically and even walk them to a bank if necessary. I mean, it's really sometimes just this fear factor that stops people from going into a bank. But there's lots of agencies that want to help people establish credit, uh, establish savings, and help them get on a better fiscal foot, uh, uh, you know, stable fiscal footing as well. We're doing that for the state as a whole, but, you know, I also think that, you know, learning about financial literacy in your own household is important, and whatever we can do to kind of bridge that gap um, that sends people who can least afford to pay it to essentially predatory lenders, um, we want that practice to stop, and for them to feel that they could just walk on down to their neighborhood bank, if it's a bank on Illinois participating bank, and have the level of trust and confidence that um, their money will be safe and secure and that that bank is actually going to help them to become uh, people who are better, fiscal, uh, you know, a more stable fiscal footing. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. I, I also want to ask you, uh, you've been working on the issue of, of managed care organizations, a, a new sort of layer of bureaucracy we see for for Medicaid related issues. What What's the problem there and, and what are you trying to do about it?
1: Well, there are many problems there. Um, Number one, the realization, which I don't think most people know, that 10 years ago when we first um, established the Managed Care organizations here in Illinois, this was a pilot program with a cost of $250 million. So $250 million of taxpayer funds that go, instead of going directly to the providers of health care services, would go to these Managed Care Organizations. And so Managed Care Organizations is essentially like a newer version of what people have traditionally known as HMOs. Uh, I think the HMO was so utterly unsuccessful and people just didn't like their HMOs that, this is my opinion here, um, that, uh, you know, they rebranded it with this Managed Care Organization MCO, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, name. But essentially, um, what happened was that they tried to do this as a pilot. Most most uh, states in the nation are moving in that direction, or have moved in that direction as well. Uh, it was meant to be uh, a program that would offer, by like, consolidating services instead of paying vendors directly, uh, we take just you know a handful of these insurance companies, and then they would provide quicker uh, and better, reliable service to um, patients at a lower cost for taxpayers and they would provide timely payments to their providers right that they contract with now what has happened is that that 250 million dollar pilot program has now in just 10 years turned into a 14 billion that's with a b went from 250 million to 14 billion dollars of taxpayer funds that leave the owner controller's office in order to go to pay frontline providers yet because I can no longer pay those providers directly and I have to go through the managed care organization, we expedite those payments, yet the managed care organizations have been holding on to those payments for months at a time. So much so that many safety net hospitals that rely on fast payment from their um, insurance companies, right, from the Mm NCOs, have had to actually begin to, to close down certain key, parts of their facilities. For example, in Chicago, we've seen um, one of the safety net hospitals who has had to, they're in the process of closing down their OBGYN, so where mothers go to give birth. So mm-hmm. That whole wing is going to close. In another safety net hospital, they're closing uh, their, what was a brand new ICU, an intensive care unit, uh, because they can no longer afford to keep it open because of the delay in payments to them. Now, I find that unconscionable, because since becoming controller, I've prioritized payments to Medicaid. And the minute pretty much I get those bills sent to me, I get them out the door. And so there is no good excuse for $14 billion being tied up at the MCO level and not getting to the actual people that are providing these life saving or these healthcare related services. Um, I'm on a mission to bring transparency to this process because I don't think it's right that I have a blind spot on what fourteen million dollars are of taxpayer funds and I can't even answer a simple question to a provider of when they're going to get paid that's not right
0: All right. well we'll look for uh, for legislation to continue to move forward on that in the in the veto session and and perhaps even into next year
1: yes they passed some really great legislation uh, that deals with MCOs and greater transparency it's not an end-all be-all but you know it's a step in the right direction And the other issue that I want to, you know, really harp on about MCOs is that, you know, um, one of the reasons why I'm very upset about this, too, is that not only are they not paying the vendors on time, but they're denying a whole bunch of services Mm. that these Mm. hospitals have already provided once they've provided them and billed them. Legitimate services. For example, one of the hospitals in Chicago had a patient in intensive care uh, who was intubated, ventilated, Obviously, completely unconscious, they were intubated and ventilated, and were having seizures. the The total cost for the day that they were in intensive care was about sixty thousand dollars, and their MCO provider only reimbursed them two hundred and twenty-two dollars. I mean, it's like an insult. So mm-hmm. this is why these little safety net hospitals are closing their doors because when they have a cost of sixty thousand dollars, they are only getting two hundred dollars uh, approved. When, by the way. In the private side of insurance, there's about a 2% denial rate on claims that are sent, whereas with the MCOs, they're denying hospitals at a rate of 26% across mm-hmm. the state of Illinois, and that's just unexplicable. I want answers as to why they are denying coverage at the rate of 26% for MCO participants versus 2% for private insured. That's just not right. So these, these issues really impact the healthcare of the people that I was elected to serve, and while they're complicated uh, to even talk about, which is why maybe no one's paying attention to this, I'm going to have to figure out a way to explain this really easily so that people understand that we have to do something about reining in this, you know, really unaccountable and, and fully in the dark program that costs the state of Illinois a ton of taxpayer money.
0: All right, excellent. Well, good luck to you, and thank you, Comptroller Susana Mendoza, for taking a little bit of time to talk to us today. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Have a good talk one. Bye bye.
0: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are let. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan from the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast